Inhabit November 3rd reading. Our next two readings are from The Quest for Holiness by David Long. Last session, we read the chapter on the image of God from this book. This week, we look at the fall and at the consequences of sin. Chapter 2, The Fall. The crux of humankind's alienation from God lies in the difficulty that the human heart and mind can have in genuinely trusting God as a wise, as a wise creator and living and living accordingly. R. W. L. Moberly. Thomas Merton observed that the unique relation between God and Adam may be described as sonship because Adam shared God's own spirit. Adam then was meant from the very first to live and breathe in unison with God. And for just as the soul was the life of Adam's body, so the spirit of God swelling in Adam was to be the life of his soul. Adam was not created as just one among the many and varied animals formed by God, but rather as one that would choose to obey God's command. It would be impossible to write a script that has a more glorious and promising beginning than the Genesis account of the creation of Adam and Eve in the image of God. As the pinnacle of creation, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden in which all of their needs were met, including intimacy with their creator. It was a garden filled with permission and only one prohibition. Astonishingly, as evidenced by the space occupied on the written pages of the Bible, this best of all beginnings is followed closely by the account of sin and the fall from grace. This beginning was marred by rebellion, disobedience, and separation from God. It seemed that as soon as Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, they turned away from God. The seemingly simple command guiding this relationship is recorded in the second chapter of Genesis. It says, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Genesis 2, 16-17 Don't eat from this tree, Adam. If you do, the result will be death. As long as you obey, the created relationship will continue. It sounds so simple, yet something went terribly wrong in this perfect relationship. By the end of the third chapter of Genesis, both Adam and Eve had disobeyed and had incurred the judgment of God. The simple answer to what went wrong is that sin produced a separation between the creatures and their God. Isaiah 59.2 The reality with which humanity has lived ever since, is that sin has consequences. It was presented clearly in the Genesis account that to choose disobedience was to choose broken fellowship, yet that was exactly the tragic choice made by our first ancestors. They were tempted with something appalling and appealing and attractive, and they decided it was better for them than the command of God. The power of sin is in its appeal. It presents itself to us as something desirable, something that in some way will bring us satisfaction. 
most often an immediate satisfaction. In some way, the opportunity presented by sin is measured against a command of God, and sin is deemed more desirable. For this reason, sin is always an affront to God. Adam and Eve were made for fellowship with God and with each other, but suddenly they felt shame, distrusted God and each other, resented each other, and were banished from paradise. The series of events which we read in Genesis 3, 1-6 constitutes what some have described as the greatest theological problem in the Word of God. Considering their intimacy with God, their place in the garden, and the clarity of the command, how could Adam and Eve have disobeyed? Why would God have created them in such a way that this disobedience was a possibility? We are permitted to probe the mind of God in search of answers, but we must be willing to find peace in the faith that disobedience does not thwart the goodness of God's sovereign plan. The familiar scene portrayed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden standing in front of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent, or Satan, was engaged in a conversation with Eve, but note that in this particular context of the presence of God was not mentioned. It seems as if he was not present. Although Christian doctrine holds that God is omnipresent, present in all places, and omniscient, omniscient all-knowing, this first encounter encounter seems to be only between Satan and the humans. Indeed, verses 8 through 11 tell the story as if God discovered the event at a later time. God was walking in the garden when he asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? This absence of an overwhelming presence of God is an important element in this well-crafted scenario. Our burning question is, how could Adam and Eve live in the presence of God in the garden and still turn away in disobedience? The answer may lie in the distinction between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. A.W. Tozer wrote, The presence and the manifestation of the presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. God is here when we are wholly unaware of it. He is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. Likewise, we are reminded that we cannot attain the presence of God. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. True, to his general nature, God is everywhere. There is an impersonal presence of God that is in no way affected by prayer, belief, or obedience. The manifest presence of God, on the other hand, is the specific selective presence of God with his people, normally as a result of prayer and obedience. We can see this in the story of Moses and Pharaoh. God was present everywhere Pharaoh was even though his presence was unrecognized or rejected. He was also present with Moses and his people, but that presence took the form of a pillar of fire and a cloud. God was present among the Egyptians, but his presence was manifest among the Israelites. 
Adam and Eve had already taken a path of independence and disobedience that took them away from the manifest presence of God and brought them within reach of the tree with the forbidden fruit. It brought them within the sphere of temptation by the evil one. In his omnipresence, God was present during the temptation. If Adam and Eve had been following in obedience, God would have been with them in his manifest presence, and their response to the temptation could have been very different. The lesson in this is that the scenario of in the Garden of Eden was not unique to Adam and Eve. Rather, it is one that is repeated in the lives of their descendants every day. How unfortunate that Adam and Eve chose to face Satan on their own. Intriguingly, while Satan tempted Eve, he never told her to eat the forbidden fruit. Instead, he undermined God's trustworthiness and truthfulness. Look at the deception. Satan misrepresented God by suggesting the command was unreasonable. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Eve caught the blatant error in Satan's statement, but she was hooked by the underlying deception. Eve's heart was opened to Satan's direct challenge of God's command. You won't die, Eve. In fact, if you eat, you will actually be better. The enticement of Eve did not come to her in the form of brute force, but through the relative passivity of an idea. It was with the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. Eve was never told to disobey God, but she was told that she would be better off if she followed her own choices and that no consequences would come from her disobedience. Dallas Willard pointed to the disastrous reality that the consequences when he wrote... When Eve, through mistrust of God, took the fatal step, she and Adam did not cease to be living beings, but they nevertheless died, as God said they would. They ceased to relate to and function in harmony with that spiritual reality that it is at the foundation of all things and whose glory the universe is an expression. They were dead to God. The story presented Adam or the story presented Eve drawing her own conclusion as to the correct action to take. Obey God or seize what appeared to be a good and and rational opportunity. Within this scenario we can see the essence of a love relationship in which love can be coerced. Either party must be free to say no. Inherit And God's decision to create beings in his own image was that they could know their wholeness in a relationship of loving union with God. These beings were given the freedom to say no to that relationship because a love relationship always leaves a beloved free to say no. Otherwise, it is not a love relationship, but coercion. The garden reveals the crux of our alienation from God, the difficulty that the human heart and mind can have in genuinely trusting God as a wise creator and living accordingly. 
Embedded in the story of disobedience is the key challenge to relationship with God that has been faced ever since. The decision of the creature to trust or not trust the creator. Satan is aware of this challenge and makes the trustworthiness of God the object of his attacks. While Eve was the principal actor in the Genesis account, the New Testament blames the fall on Adam in Romans 5.12. Adam's sin changed the relationship between the creature and the creator. Adam had no reason to distrust God, but he chose to allow distrust distance, suspicion, and disobedience to enter into his relationship with God. Dennis Kinlaw wrote, And behind the shift from trust and communion to suspicion and separation was an overriding concern for themselves. Like Adam and Eve, we all have a tendency to make ourselves the center of importance. Martin Luther used the phrase, Core incurvatus adsi to depict the human condition which means a heart curved in on itself sin occurs when a person rebels against the created order and takes the place of god in his or her life alignment or misalignment of life around oneself means we determine the priorities of life and we live in a way that tries to satisfy those often distorted priorities. Look at the deceptive nature sin can have. The distinction between blessing and curse can be subtle, subtle c- confused all the more by Satan's implication. You deserve this. Further, Luther observed that God gave Adam no rationale as to why he was not to eat from this particular tree. In addition, from the perspective of Adam and Eve, neither of the two could look at the fruit and conclude rationally that God's command not to eat was good and reasonable. The tree was beautiful, its fruit would satisfy the natural need for food, and it would give them wisdom. To the rational mind, these all seemed to be good, but if the rational mind is corrupt, mistaken ideas and false beliefs will poison life. The command was not to be justified through reason. It was to be obeyed for the sole reason that it came from God. It was precisely at this point that the serpent sought to drive the wedge between God and humans. This point of struggle between trust in rational human thought and trust in God. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to to make what seemed to be a rational decision even though it was in clear opposition to God's command. This new scenario afforded to them the greatest opportunity to demonstrate trust in God. Obedience even when the rational mind does not understand the way of God. Isaiah 55, 8-9 Instead, Adam and Eve substituted their own human reasoning for the word of God and trusted in their own rationalization for trust in God. One of the major theological points of this story is that true wisdom comes only through intimacy with God and the attempts to secure wisdom outside fellowship 
are doomed to failure. It also makes it clear that the deepening ability to trust God is a vital element of spiritual formation. Some observe that the eating of the apple was, after all, not a very serious offense, making it easy for our human reasoning to tell us that the punishment did not fit the crime. Such a simple act, it may seem, should not be should not have borne the consequence of the death of not only the perpetrators, but all of their descendants. To the contrary, though, it is important that we understand that it is seemingly inconsequential nature of the command and its breach that conveys the very point of the story. The arguable irrationality of the command combined with the threat of death upon disobeying has been understood to mean that even the slightest disobedience of the command was the m- was and must be a total catastrophic sin which would estrain from God estrange from God not only the immediate offender but also all future descendants and indeed all future humanity. We come to the understanding that God set out a fundamental truth that defines our relationship with him. Any disobedience is sin and any sin has tragic consequences. We can understand this seemingly harsh outcome more clearly when looking at the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. Matthew 4 tells the story of another temptation, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus had just been baptized, had heard the affirming words of the Father, and was beginning his public ministry. We are told that he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. The first two of the three temptations that followed were prefaced with the challenge, If you are the Son of God, see Matthew 4, verses 3 and 6. It was God the Father who, at the baptism of Jesus, said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy, in Matthew 3, 17. Once again, as in the temptation of Adam and Eve, Satan was saying, Did God really say? And more specifically, the tempter was saying, If you are the Son of God, you deserve more than God is giving you. You have a right to more. The temptations came in three forms. To turn stone into bread for his own need. To prove his identity as the Son of God. And to to claim dominion over all the nations. Succumbing to the first temptation would seemed to have had the reasonable, sensible end of satisfying his hunger, the second of proving that he was indeed the Son of God. The third would have been consistent with a dominion already promised in the scripture as Jesus is the Lord of all. Each of these temptations involved the sin of seeking fulfillment outside of the trusting relationship with the Father. Still, because of the promised results, we are so capable of rationalizing these as reasonable and acceptable ways for Jesus to have responded. B. 
being fed, being known, and being exalted. Although he was defeated by Jesus in the wilderness, we see Satan's tenacity when he came back with the same temptation at the cross. The same conditional statement, if you are the son of God, came once again through the mouths of Jesus' tormentors, challenging Jesus to come down from the cross in Matthew 27:40. It would be easy to rationalize that in feeding himself or escaping from the horror of the cross, there was no harm and no fault in Jesus to be found. But this rationalization, so easily made from a self-referenced viewpoint, would obscure Matthew's depiction of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, in which his refusal to go along with the enticing suggestions is not marginal but fundamental to the whole meaning of his trusting and obedient sonship. In other words, the obedience of Jesus that followed from absolute trust of God was con- constitutive of relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It is a relationship conditioned upon absolute trust, which is the basis for absolute obedience. The decision of Adam and Eve of whether to succumb to the enticing suggestion of Satan was neither marginal nor inconsequential, but rather points to the very essence and intensity of the trust relationship for which and into which they were created. They were created by God and for God, which called for unswerving trust in God. Adams substituted his own relational understanding of what seemed good for what God said was good for him. John Wesley spoke of the consequence of Adam's action. By these acts, the man and the woman fragrantly declared that they would no longer have God as their ruler. They would be governed by their own wills, not the will of God, who created them. They would not seek happiness in God, but in the world and in the works of their own hands. Jesus, on the other hand, sacrificed himself in obedient trust of the Father. A marked difference between the first Adam and the second Adam was their trust in God. It becomes apparent that trust in God was the central issue in the temptation that led to the fall. As Oswald Chambers wrote, Our problems arise when we refuse to place our trust in the reality of his presence. Recognizing that an awareness of God's presence strengthens our ability to trust. Had Adam and Eve been attuned to God's presence, it surely would have influenced their actions. They had a choice, which gave them the full opportunity to trust in God. Trust in God allows for dependence upon God, and in their case, trust for food and wisdom. Distrust of God requires dependence upon oneself. This brings us to a deeper understanding of sin. Sin is our unwillingness to be radically dependent upon God for life and breath and all things. It is, therefore, the idolatry of preferring to be God's rather than truly human, which was, of course, the primal temptation in Eden. 
Trust may, at times in our lives, be an easy response, but at some point, a trust of radical dependence is likely to be demanded of or offered to all of us who are disciples seeking to be like Jesus. Again, in the contrast between Adam and Jesus, the meaning and purpose of life is brought into clear focus. Both faced a command that, from a purely human viewpoint, lacked strong rational clarity. For Adam, the command was not to eat within the context of every need being provided for him. For Jesus, the command was for total surrender, even to death. Trust in the Father that God is without qualification, a good and sovereign God, is the defining essence of the relationship between the Father and the Son. This trust sustained Jesus through his passion, crucifixion, and resurrection. It is often observed that Jesus did not answer Pilate when he asked his famous question, what is truth, in John 18.38. We may think of the entire passion, however, as Jesus' answer. The right human relation to the one true God is that of trusting in the life-giving power of the Spirit of the Father, even in the face of hostile enemies. Adam and Eve missed a great opportunity to grow in trust and to love and glorify God by trusting. The whole work of God and redemption is to undo the tragic effects of their decision. Through his unequivocal trust in the Father, Jesus knew the truth, lived the truth, and is the truth. This invites us to examine the strength of our own commitment to the commands of God and the alertness we have to the opposition that might come from our own rational mind. As modeled by Jesus, we are challenged to trust God as the greatest good even when our rational minds suggest otherwise. Reflection and Application Familiarize yourself with Genesis 2, 16-17. What was God telling Adam to do? What reason did God give for giving this command to Adam? What was the stated consequence of disobedience? When you are told to do something, but you are not given a reason for it, what influences whether or not you obey? Number two, read Genesis 3, 1 through 11 reflectively. Draw yourself into the story as a close observer of the event. Where is the tree? Where is Eve? Where is Adam? Where is Satan? Where is God? Given the sovereignty of God, why do you believe he allowed this to happen? Number three. The emphasis in this chapter has been on uncompromising trust in God and the difficulty human beings have trusting in this manner. What had God done that would allow Adam and Eve to trust him? What had, gone do- what had God done that would cause Adam and Eve to distrust him? When they were making the decision of whether or not to obey God's command, 
What did they need to trust God for in order to be obedient? Number four, what makes it difficult for you to trust God? Number five, the rational mind is a gift from God. As a gift from God, it should be exercised and developed to its full potential. What circumstances are you aware of in life in which one course of action seems reasonable but the word of God forbids it or points to in another direction. Number six, considering one of those circumstances in which the rational course of action is in conflict with the word of God, in what specific ways do you need to trust in God in order to be obedient to his commands?